0: My name's Eileen Townsend and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hey there. First thing off, I wanted to thank our great sponsor, John Deere. You know, when I was growing up in the South in farm country, I always knew John Deere's agricultural line of products and I've so much enjoyed hearing from the folks I meet in the woods in the north talk about using John Deere equipment in forestry. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions, or you can give yourself every advantage to create your own. As the leader in forestry worldwide, John Deere is best equipped to provide those advantages with productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacles to success are many, Look to John Deere to help you outrun them all. Thanks again to John Deere for sponsoring. It means a lot. It's a tough life to be a spruce budworm. Your average spruce budworm is a miniature brown caterpillar found in spruce and fir forests throughout the north woods. It's preyed upon by 70 different kinds of parasitic wasps, it's gobbled up as bird food, and it's menaced by foresters and landowners. For periods of about 50 years, budworm populations stay very low because of population cycles and natural enemies. But every half century, the tiny spruce budworm has its day. Populations explode, and spruce budworm moths travel through the north woods in swarms so dense that they appear to be blizzards on Doppler radar. During these outbreaks, the spruce budworm assumes biblical proportions. It also kills a lot of timber. The last big budworm outbreak took place in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Those who worked in the forest industry in Maine during that period are no stranger to the words spruce budworm. During that outbreak, the budworm defoliated 20% of Maine's spruce and fir forests, causing the timber industry to salvage log extensively. In Canada, the picture was even more dramatic. Some areas of Nova Scotia saw 90% tree mortality. Clear cuts became commonplace. The timber industry responded to the outbreak in a big way. New roads were built to access, budworm-affected timber stands, mills expanded, logging outfits became more mechanized, a glut of softwoods entered the market all at once. Basically, with budworm, we weren't just dealing with short-term mortality. Uh, There were these huge economic and ecological impacts that happened. So the goal for the forest industry during the 1970s and 1980s outbreak uh, was pretty simple. Save what trees they could before the damage was too great, and destroy the budworm with pesticides. To destroy the budworm, uh, they used a very well-known pesticide, DDT, that definitely destroyed the budworm, but it also contaminated water supply and harmed fisheries. Rachel Carson wrote about DDT in her classic Silent Spring, and the chapter on spruce budworm management is entitled Rivers of Death. So the 1970s and 1980s outbreak left a changed wood industry and a public very wary of the downstream effects of budworm management. Now we're on the verge of another budworm outbreak. So what will we do? In this episode, we talk with foresters in Canada and Maine about new management strategies, tools for early detection of budworm, and how to communicate with landowners about the pest. But before we dive into the budworm, let's first hear about what's going on in the industry in Maine. When this episode comes out, the Northeastern Loggers Association will be in Bangor, Maine for our annual Forest Products Expo. We hope to see you there. That's May 17th and 18th in Bangor. In honor of this Maine-focused episode, then, we spoke to Dana Duran, the Executive Director of the Professional Logging Contractors of Maine.
1: Maine has uh, 17 million acres of, uh, of timberland. I mean, we're the most heavily, heavily forested uh, state in the country. Um, but we have uh, geographic differences in terms of where uh, it's mostly by land ownership, uh, your southern part of the state geographically is your more densely populated, so it's your less contiguous ownership so you have a lot more small private landowners. Um, the northern well I should say the central the northern part of the state is is predominantly where the industrial landowners the REITs Temos, uh individual large land ownership exists. Uh, So in the contractor, in the world of contractors, you have mostly stumpage contractors who operate in the southern third of the state who are working for small private landowners moving from job to job on a continuous rotation. And then in the northern two-thirds of the state, there's still uh, small private landowners, but the predominance is the large industrial landowners. And in those situations, you have Uh, contractors who work on on, uh, contracts for logging services on service contracts, um, where they work generally for the same landowner year after year after year. Um, And so that's kind of the geographic distribution for contractors and and who they work for. You know, the, the fiber resource is fairly consistent throughout the state, although the southern part of the state is dominated by pine and red oak. And the northern part of the state is dominated by spruce fir is the easiest way. And then, you know, hardwood is throughout the entire state. So that's that's kind of a general description of of Maine, so to speak. Uh, I think we'll continue to see a manufacturing growth uh, once Old Town uh, fully materializes by late. Well, it won't be fully materialized, but they'll be back online by. Mid to late summer. I don't think they're going to expect to ramp up to 100% until sometime in 2020. They've got some other investments to make, but you're going to continue to see investments in the state, manufacturing growth. Um, that's the good news. I think the concern is on the contractor side. As I mentioned, the health of the contractor is not good, their ability to compete for people is not good. Long term, getting people into the market or into the business and making the investment is nearly impossible. Um, so it's, uh, you know, we've got some major, we got some, some good news and some bad news. And I, I think something is going to have to give over the next couple of years in order to bring that contractor base back. You know, we, we're in the middle of our legislative state legislative session right now. So, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're working on some things having to do with harvesting on public lands, um, issues having to deal with, uh, collective bargaining, um, for contractors, uh, there are other I- issues that we've that we're looking at, um, having to do with you know road transportation infrastructure, posted roads, um, you name it. At the state legislature, if it has to do with logging, whether we're you know on the offense trying to change something that's that's proactive uh, in terms of loggers, we're working on it. Or if there's things like workers' comp legislation up this session that could have a negative impact upon the profitability of contractors, you know, we're also very involved in that. So those are, those are the big ticket items that we're watching very closely. Um, you know, the invasives are out there. We're watching to see what happens with the ash, the emerald ash borer, uh, the brown tail moth in Maine. We've had two quarantines in the state in southern York County. And then also in the far northern part of the state, we expect probably over the next uh, one to two years that that quarantine for emerald ash borer is going to, be statewide and will be consistent with our neighbors to the west in New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, and then also our neighbors to the east in New Brunswick. Uh, and then the brown tail moth has presented some issues as well on, on the movement of fiber, uh, but I think we have a pretty good sense of, of what we're dealing with at this point. So, you know, we're watching that spruce budworm really has not materialized to the extent that a lot predicted. It seems to have stayed north in Quebec and New Brunswick, um, but that also on a 40 year cycle generally does not, um, imp, you know, it's not as invasive, um, every, every, or, you know, every turn it takes on a 40 year rotation, generally it's every other. So that is probably standing to reason. And it's more consistent with that than, than the, uh, every 40 years at this point. So I'd say those are the big things that work, you know, we're watching, we're concerned about. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll just keep coming back to, to contract your health and employee well-being um that's the biggest our biggest thing that we're watching right now we just published a a major labor and wage study that we did in conjunction with the university of southern maine back in mid-march and on um, as i mentioned the labor statistics are quite glaring in terms of the needs we have now and in the future and then on the On the ability to to hire people and pay them a living wage, Um, logging operators and heavy duty truck drivers in our industry have paid the lowest wages of any comparable skill set in any other occupation in Maine. Um, And so we've got we've got our work cut out for us, because if we're going to find people and get them excited about being employed in the industry, we've got to have the ability to pay higher wages. And that's that's our biggest challenge right now. Um, The only other thing I'll mention, you know, we started a mechanized logging operations program uh, for post-secondary education here in Maine two years ago. This is our third year coming up this summer. Um, We're excited about it. I mentioned the labor needs we have. Uh, We were able to work with our state legislature with private manufacturers like Nortrax, John Deere, um, Milton Cat, ProPAC and you know between some state funding uh the private sector contributions we've been able to run this program on a pretty low budget and we're excited about it because it actually provides a professional pathway to get a new operator trained which is what the contractor really needs they can't afford to do it on their own any longer so that's exciting we're running it again again a third time this summer in western Maine uh and we're working right now with our community college system to possibly start running it twice a year, starting in 2020. Um, so that's a, you know, that is a positive for our industry. Having, having a, a pathway approach to training that involves our educational system is a must when we're talking about uh, pieces of equipment that, that, uh, you know, cost anywhere from 425000 to $700,000 per piece. Uh, we're not, we're not, we're not, you know, training people to to harvest wood with a chainsaw and a cable skitter. 95% of our industry is mechanized and we need to train people to fill those, those uh, employment needs. So we're, you know, we're excited about that. It's gotten off to a good start and we're, we're excited about the future with that program.
0: Thanks again to Dana for his insight. All right, so on to budworm. First, we'll hear from Brian Roth, a forester with the University of Maine who runs the Cooperative Forestry Research Unit about the history of spruce budworm in the Northeast.
2: This is a success story. And uh, what happened back in the day in 1975, uh, kind of the pattern of things were it's a natural occurring problem. The test is always here and just low endemic levels. And then it gets out of control and goes epidemic, gets away from all its natural predators and starts to defoliate the forest over and, and just really the balsam fir. I know it's spruce budworm, but it's the balsam fir that gets hit the hardest and spruce uh, less. Those trees can live a few years, you know, several years with um, heavy defoliation, longer with light defoliation, but eventually they become stressed. And the industry gets nervous. If you own that forest, you would want to go and salvage that wood before it dies, falls down, and rots. So there was a lot of salvage logging going on in the 1970s and 80s, so large clear cuts. Um, They brought in large harvesting equipment, so they were doing whole tree harvests where you cut the entire tree and and drag it roadside. The mills were expanding. Uh, There was a lot of activity. The log drives um, of the old days, and you've, you've reported on that before, were ending. And so there was all this new road construction going on. So it really opened up the Northwoods so that even even the public now could drive up in there and see what was going on. So there were concerns then with um, like sustainability, even at that time. What are the effects if you take the whole tree away? In theory, there's some nutrients and organics in the, in the fine branches. What does that do over the long run? Mm-hmm. Are we reducing the ability of that forest to continue to provide these resources for us in the future? So, we at the CFRU, they were nervous about this. We put in some big studies uh, looking at that very thing, and that was, you know, 40 years ago. Um, There's a study at Weymouth Point uh, in northern Maine that we have that we're still researching, looking at um, soils and carbon and nutrients. Uh, how the trees are growing, the effect on um, really the long term productivity. So, that's very interesting that we can do those kind of long term research because of the budworm uh, as a result of this harvest practices changing. Because it was a big change. Before that, they were cutting, you know, single tree with cable skidders and before that with horses. So, we have this huge change and, and we were here to help provide some answers on that. Um, The other thing they were worried about because of the budworm outbreak was wood supply. So when you have all those trees dying and getting harvested at the same time, down the road, you're going to have a dip in your output. It just makes sense that you get a bunch of wood now, and then later there's going to be a, a dip in the supply. And they wanted to know, well, what's that going to be? Because that influences whether you invest in your sawmills, what your labor force is going to be like, all kinds of, of things. You know What can we do now to help fill in that little gap? Do we try to grow some trees quicker? Do we switch to a different species? All kinds of things like that. So we did some growth and yield and wood supply analyses through the CFRU to help answer those questions about wood supply. Um, then moving along, uh, then was about regeneration. So how do we get these forests to grow back now that, and by this, this time, maybe the budworm was starting to fade, you know, that, that outbreak was going away, but we're left with the aftermath. So when you make a big clear cut and you put a lot of light on the ground and you do a lot of disturbance, uh, you're still going to get a forest. It's, it's Maine, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the, you know, the, the northern forest. Uh, nature does not like a, a vacuum and something's gonna grow back. And we tend to get um, a mixture of hardwoods and softwoods. When when you make a big disturbance like that, you get a lot of of the hardwoods mixed in. And that might be fine if you're interested in a mixture of hardwood and softwood, but back then they were really focused on spruce and fir at the mills and landowners wanted to grow more. So they did a lot. Of, there's a tool, uh, herbicide, which is very selective, and they can um, basically spray that that regenerating clear cut with, with some products that select against the hardwood and promote the conifer. So kind of like you weed your garden, you would go through and, and spray it, and then you'd end up with a, almost a pure softwood regenerating forest. And And we did a lot of research on that because uh, there are new chemicals, new methods of delivery. Uh, And so the research was done on what's the most efficient, um, effective, like efficacy, where you use the right product in the right places, the right timing uh, in order to get your desired outcome. And so a lot of research on chemistry and, and all that in order to do the job. And there is also research on what are the effects on on the in the water supply and also in in um, uh, wildlife habitat.
0: Brian Roth also explained how Canada, both Atlantic, Canada, and Quebec, is handling the soon to come outbreak differently than Maine, and uh, the collaboration between our industry and theirs when it comes to budworm.
2: So the Canadians, you know they also have a large forest resource, and their economy is very dependent on it. They invested heavily in science and research um, in the past outbreaks, but they never really shut down in between the outbreaks. They, they kept studying things, kept their scientists around. And then when this bloodworm outbreak started to come back in Quebec, and, and now it's moving towards New Brunswick, they still had um, momentum. Whereas here in Maine, we, we kind of lost all our forest entomologists. Uh, And so we have
0: this
2: knowledge gap. Why? I don't know. Maybe they're more socialist than Canada. I can say that. I'm kidding. I think it's just that uh, when the problem goes away, it's quick to think short term. Hmm, And that here's the long term problem that comes and goes. And now that it's coming back, we like this research cooperative is really very important because we rely on partners So we're partnering very closely with the Maine Forest Service. Um, We're partnering closely with the U.S. Forest Service. um, And even more important, uh, with the Canadians who are kind of on the front edge of that outbreak. So we're learning a lot from them. I'm on their communications team. So a couple uh, times a month, I'll either call in or go up there and be part of that program. So Maine is... uh, on the front edge but we're really leaning on what's going on up north especially with this new program they have where they're looking at controlling the populations of insect rather than waiting for the population to explode and then doing some um what we call foliage protection in order to just try to protect our resource so it's Being preemptive is what they're trying to do in in Canada, to let the natural enemies keep the population down and then going out and doing these targeted early intervention. Um, Rob talks about whack-a-mole, where they'll see a population come up in one area and they'll go out and treat it with insecticides to just push it down a little bit. And they do that over time, they can keep that, that outbreak from spreading.
0: Allison Knottie, the lead entomologist for the state of Maine, spoke about the use of pheromone traps as a part of the state's citizen science program.
3: Well, so the pheromone traps that we use, we've only been using since the collapse of the last outbreak. Um, But what we expect to see is a gradual but not necessarily steady rise in populations from sort of a... endemic or in the case of spruce budworm nearly invisible um, population level to uh, populations that you can't ignore and what that would mean would be you know being able to find spruce budworm caterpillars out in the forest for instance uh, which we have done in decades in Maine Um, it means seeing more moths in the pheromone traps and that is something that starting in 2013 we started to, to see a change from where we were basically getting zero, you know, right around zero moths per trap. It was a little bit more than zero moths per trap as far as our, our pheromone trap network to um, seeing you know more than 15 moths per trap. Um, that doesn't sound like very much, but it was a noticeable change uh, from the previous years. And those catches in the pheromone traps and also, you know, in the light traps as, as well have kind of bumped up and down since that that uh, first jump in 2013, but they haven't really gone back to that near zero level that we were seeing in the decades before that. And so it, it is a, a slight rise in, in the moss cotton traps. Um, it's not seen uniformly across the geography of Maine where we expect spruce budworm, We're we're getting... As you might expect, if you've seen the maps from Quebec uh, and the defoliation there, uh, we're seeing more uh, budworm in northern Maine than we are in western Maine, where we might we would eventually get spruce budworm uh, in a period of outbreak.
0: So we're gonna take a quick break here and have a word from our sponsor, John Deere. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions or give yourself every advantage and create your own. As the worldwide leader in forestry, John Deere is best equipped to provide those advantages with productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacles to success are many. Look to John Deere to help you outrun them all. Thanks again to John Deere. Aaron Weiskittel is the Maine Spruce Budworm Task Force lead and the director for the Center of Research on Sustainable Forests. Aaron updated us on what's happening in the Northeast and how essential coordinating with private landowners is in this effort.
4: We've been very proactive of getting that research in front of the main landowners, so they're aware of it and, and they're using these tools and they're pretty excited about it. Um, I think the other part of this whole equation is communications and kind of just having coordination. Uh, In the last outbreak, it kind of, I wasn't around, but it was kind of a a free for all and everyone was kind of fending for themselves. You also had a lot more kind of uh, federal presence in terms of wanting to uh, deal with this issue. I think going forward, what we're seeing is obviously there's less resources to do kind of federal responsiveness, to do large-scale management like what they're doing in Canada of these early intervention programs. And so really the landowners are going to have to coordinate amongst themselves and, and come up with a strategy. Because if one landowner wants to spray and it's surrounded by another landowner who has, who has budworm occurring, I mean, it's really just you're throwing money down the drain um you really got to have a pretty systematic whole scale approach of of managing that and it's the difficulty of working with a kind of highly heterogeneous mixed ownership like we have in Maine it's easier in Canada when you got mostly kind of public lands that that you can make policy about that
0: Dr. Rob Johns works on spruce budworm management for the Canadian Forest Service and is a pioneer of a new management strategy called early intervention.
5: And so anyway, basically the question is, how do you manage it? You can do some things through silviculture. In the midst of an outbreak, you can sometimes harvest some of those trees in, but of course you're going to glut the market if you harvest too much, which I'm sure Maine also dealt with back in the day. Like how much of these trees can you actually harvest? In many cases, you don't even have roads cut into the stands that they're hammering, right? So, um, (laughs) So it's not necessarily the best way. And so what they've done in the past is they've actually opted towards doing insecticide treatments. Um, And some of those, of course, have been very controversial. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was DDT. Rachel Carlson wrote a book about it, um, which they had a chapter that was based on the New Brunswick DDT trials called Rivers of Death. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. yeah, So it's very, very controversial. DDT had huge ecological impacts. Um, It kept foliage on the trees. That was that was which was the goal. Um, so, part of what this early, so what we're working on right now is an early intervention strategy. We don't have DDT left anymore. We use things like BTK and Tebifenicide. They're both back, kind of back. What BTK at least is a bacterial insecticide. That's that might be one to focus on because that's what Maine might use. Um, it's it, it's very specific. It only affects caterpillars um, that are feeding on the trees at the time. So it actually has to be ingested that's how it kills. It doesn't have any accumulation effects like DDD had. It's not a contact insecticide. So it doesn't like affect anything except for these caterpillars on the trees. Um, And so what what we're really looking at right now with this program, and this is the debate that Maine is probably is going to be coming up with is with very soon as well that Brian was alluding to. The question is, do we just let the budworm outbreak come into the state or come into the province in our case, and Eat, eat, start eating on our trees and when the densities get really high we just sort of on a really high value stands that we know we're going to harvest soon just protect those trees and, and those stands for very short periods of time and just let the outbreak burn itself out which it eventually would do that's that's sort of the way that they've always managed it in the past they just basically it's called foliage protection strategy the foliage protection where they're just basically trying to keep enough needles on that tree to let it Endure through the spruce bedroom outbreak until natural enemies pull those populations back down. That's how it's always been managed. And our early intervention strategy was premised on the idea of can we actually go out there when populations are still relatively low and treat areas where they're coming up, which we call hot spots, and just keep that and just work on the leading edge of that outbreak and keep that population from spreading altogether. And that's where, that's, so that's what we've been working on for the last, I guess, it was six or seven years, although if you looked at all the research, it's probably more than you know, a decade and a half, of trying to figure out from a population standpoint, can we actually slow spread? And from a management standpoint, can we actually find these hotspots? Can we actually suppress them to the point where they don't continue to grow? And can we do that without having huge impacts on the natural enemies? Because we need these natural enemies in this particular program to keep those populations down more broadly. Good, so, that, so that's the program in a nutshell. And there's also, I should say just in terms of, I, in terms of how like the components for this, there's of course the things like, can you detect these hotspots? Do the populations work the way they think we do? So far, those the answers to those are, yes, we think they work the way we think they are, and yes, we can find them. Uh, a huge part, uh, and this is an example of that, is the communication side of things. We have to talk to people and tell them that we're not using DDT. And we have to tell them what impacts, like how these insecticides work and what impacts they actually have on the broader ecological community. And is it a good thing to suppress spruce budworm? Like what are the sort of unintended non-target impacts that might come with that? And so so there's all these different components that come with it. Um, In terms of how it's working. So this started, our our actual test started in Northern New Brunswick around 2015 is really where it started. Um, We are detecting hotspots, I think we had 30 or 40 that year that were sort of in a cluster around in northeast New Brunswick, around the Campbellton area. We built our block, our spray block around that. It was treated with BTK and tebifenicide. And those populations within that block declined, and the populations all around the area seemed to pop up a little bit. And so we had this new collection of hotspots outside of that. And 2016, we sprayed those. And those populations declined in that area, and they popped up in other areas, right? And so, this we've sort of over the last four years, we've been having this game of whack-a-mole with these uh, with these hotspots. And each year, those hotspots that were growing outside of these treated areas would increase. Were increased from the previous year. So we went from maybe 30 or 40 to the in 2015, and by 2017. Uh, It would have been 2017, we had almost 120 of what we call hotspots. And yeah, so yeah, so it it had really escalated even as we were suppressing these other hotspots. It's worth noting that a lot of that was caused by this raging outbreak, which is going on in Quebec, where the moths would be dispersing into our province and laying eggs there. So even as we treated, we're having good suppression in these areas. But a lot of the areas outside were being augmented by these immigrants coming in from the north. So as of 2008, now what was interesting is in 2018, we had a spray block of almost 220,000 hectares uh, up the Northeast New Brunswick. Uh, lots, lots of densities up there. We had had sort of managed the, it was about the same number of hotspots as from the previous year. So we'd sort of maintained for those two years. Um, we had very little immigration that came in that year. And so when we came back to survey this past fall, we only had 10 hotspots. So we had dropped by almost 90% in terms of the hotspots. And so, whereas last year we had a, had a treatment area of about 220,000 hectares, this year we had a treatment area that's looking like about 10,000 hectares. Yeah. And so that's why Maine is, Maine is in the situation and, and Brian will tell you this, where it's like, okay, do, um, it's not quite to our border yet, but we're starting to see some densities, not, not like densities that are gonna cause damage, but we're finding budworm. On the northern sort of northeast tip of Maine one or two or three per branch it's not huge densities but sort of a harbinger that things are potentially coming and the question is okay do we just let this kind of roll through Maine if it comes that way or do we do we decide that we're going to adopt this framework of early intervention strategy and try to chase these hot spots in the way that New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada are um, and, and of course New Brunswick has a, has a stake in this as well because depending on what to say, if Maine sort of says, you know what, we're just gonna let this kind of roll around then we're gonna get flanked <laughs> coming from, uh, from Maine potentially. So like, this is, this is sort of a, like a, a, uh, a US Canada issue that, which is why Brian and I sort of collaborate so much
0: on this stuff. It is a tough life for a budworm guys. We here at the Northern Logger want to hear your questions and experiences with the spruce budworm. You can always write to me, your editor, at eileen at northernlogger.com or visit us on Facebook with your comments. Thanks again. Tune in next month. Hi, it's Eileen again. If you'd like to get the word out about your company, whether you buy logs, whether you're an equipment dealer, a university with forestry students, or even a weekend warrior, Consider advertising on the Northern Logger podcast. It helps us do this work. Thank you.